Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men. Thank you for Gilbert Bible Church. Our hearts truly are filled with gratitude for your kindness to us. And Lord, we also thank you for your word, that we can know you, that we can draw near to you, that we can glean wisdom um, from the true source that would give to us what we need for life and godliness and living for your glory. We pray that this morning would be helpful for each one of us to grow in godliness, to be better equipped to navigate the various relationships that you bring into our lives for your glory, that we would be men, men uh, who are godly, men who are faithful, men who are courageous. And Lord, we pray that that courage would uh, manifest itself through humility and peaceability and devotion to our Savior. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I wanted to, uh, did everybody get an outline on their way in? They were on the table out there. If you didn't, uh, go grab one, the outline for this morning, semester three, week three. Uh, we're going to be looking in a few moments at conflict resolution, maintaining unity in the bond of peace. But before we dive into our study, I wanted to talk about a couple things. First of all, you should have received an email this last week regarding Courageous Churchmen. Courageous Churchmen is a conference in Jupiter, Florida that takes place every February, put on by Grace Emanuel Bible Church. Jerry Rag heads it up. It is a wonderful conference that a contingency of men uh, have gone to either prior to Gilbert Bible Church's existence. Uh, we went with Grace Bible Church. Grace has continued to send a group of men. We went last year. I think there was 10 of us, something like that. And uh, it is a wonderful, intimate conference. We've done Shepherd's Conference in the past at Grace Bible Church. That was wonderful and incredibly edifying. It was not inexpensive. The conference costs were expensive, travel costs, and then um, hotels and different things like that. And the conference just grew exponentially. And so what we gained in experience, we lost in intimacy, both with each other because things are so sprawled out, but also just with other men there. It was, you know, 5,000 men in the same place was pretty sweet and overwhelming. Um, but what we found was the Courageous Churchmen Conference provided an intimacy both for the group that went and also for us with others there. There's just opportunity to build relationships with other godly men across the, the country in unique ways. And some of the focus that Jerry and the other pastors focus on has been uniquely beneficial because it's really narrowed in on practical ecclesiology directly relating to the church and how pastors function within the church and different things that they face. And so each year we plan to do something together as men. For now, it's Courageous Churchmen. We've been um, blessed by that. You got an email. Um, the, the time frame that we gave you was not long. We apologize for that. Um, we, we were a little tardy getting you the information. It, if you could let us know hey, I'm in or I'm not, or I'd like to, but I'm not sure yet. Any of those categories, if you could let us know by that, I think it's October 22nd is when Karis asked to let us know. That would be great. And also, um, there has been a significant amount of money uh, designated, donated to scholarship men going. And what we don't know is how many men are going. So we don't know exactly what that means 
cost-wise. What I would say is if you have the ability to go and the desire to go, talk to us about that. I, I don't think I imagine a scenario where it would cost anybody more than $100, including airfare, for them to go based off of what's been going been given and probably less than that, depending on how many people go. So if cost is an issue, if that's a hiccup and you're trying to figure out, man, I want to go, I actually can go, um, but I'm not, but I'm not sure what the cost is. And so I can't really commit on what I'm going to pay or come talk to me, let me know that. And, and we can um, try to get more specifics to work within your budget. We wouldn't want anybody to not go because of cost. And, uh, and if you are able to go, you can always listen to sermons online, but you cannot, you cannot reproduce the sweetness of the fellowship that transpires just as a group of guys together at the conference. There's a wonderful family, the Axtells, that Mark and Samantha, they host us every year. They're planning to host us this year. They are the epitome, the standard, the best expression of hospitality I've ever experienced. Um, and so we all stay at their house together. Last night, I think the first night we were there, we just worshiped in song together. We prayed, um, had wonderful conversation, a lot of ping pong. Some guys played, I don't know, Settlers of Catan or some, some nerdy game into the night. Uh, and, uh, and, and it was just great being together in the same house, being able to experience the teaching and interacting. So highly, highly, highly commend that. The topic for the conference is the pastor and his care for souls, uh, which we know is the, the call of a pastor to shepherd the flock of God among you, that there is a giving of an account for the souls entrusted under your care. And so uh, I, I'm very confident that it'll be a, a topic that we'll greatly benefit from. And just the nature of the conference, there are sessions where it's direct teaching, and then there's also typically followed up from each section, how they arrange it is a kind of a panel discussion that is really practical and really engaging. And so just, I, I couldn't commend the conference or the week uh, more to you guys. If you're able to go, uh, highly recommend it. And then if you have any additional questions, let me know. Tom or Tyler, anything that I'm missing on that? Did I oversell it? Okay. Did I oversell the Axtell's hospitality? No. Impossible. <laughs> I undersold it. It's impossible. It's amazing. Okay, let's do this. We're going um, to take a look at our Old Testament timeline. So hopefully you guys remembered to grab your plastic laminated sheet from your previous year's folder. Yep, okay, I see a lot of smirks, which indicate to me that you didn't. That's okay. Um, it's really helpful putting our Old Testament in context of its appropriate timeline. Uh, if this is your first year and you just got a folder, it should be in your folder for this year. It is the key events of the Old Testament. We believe in a, a young earth that earth is most likely something between six and 10,000 years old. I probably lean more towards the 6,000-year-old earth, which means our timeline begins with creation around 4,000 BC. With that, God creates the world. Uh, the earth looks at it. Everything is good. One thing 
in its sinless state is not good, and that's that man is alone, so he makes a helper suitable for him. Shortly after this, man falls, sin enters the world. Eventually, what we find is just even a short period later that the expression of the depravity of man and the sinfulness of man's heart is manifested in man's heart was only concerned with evil continually. That's the state of what was going on with mankind. And so God brought judgment on the earth through the flood, but he delivered Noah and his family through the ark that he tells them to disperse and inhabit the land. What did they do? Uh, They joined together, reproduced, and sought to make a name for themselves with the Tower of Babel. So what did he do? He dispersed them across the world through a multitude of languages, but he made a promise to one man. God's promise to one man to become a nation to bless all other nations. Who was that man? Abraham, exactly. Abraham. In order to have a nation, you need three ingredients, three primary ingredients. You need a people, you need a constitution, and you need land. God grew those people as they were taken captive in Egypt over 400 years. They grew from something like 70 to 2 million. That's supernatural exponential growth as a people that transpired under captivity uh, in Egypt. So they had 2 million. In the Exodus, God brings them out of Egypt, 1446 BC, through the means of 10 plagues. Do you guys see that little lightning bolt with a 10? That's meant to indicate 10 plagues that God used. They cross the Red Sea. At this point, they're a people of 2 million. They've got their people. Then uh, Moses leads them to Mount Sinai, or the Lord leads them to Mount Sinai, gives them a constitution. They're a theocracy. What does it mean to be a theocracy? God is their king. God is their ruler. Excellent. So now they've got their constitution. They send spies into the land. The spies come back. They say we're grasshoppers among giants. They fear. They don't. They fear the people more than fearing God. They're not obedient to God. God delays them. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years until eventually they cross the Jordan. Uh, That first generation passes away. Joshua and Caleb lead them into the promised land where God calls them to divide and conquer, divide the land among the tribes and conquer it all and thoroughly occupy the land. At this point, they have their land. They're a nation. The nation of Israel is established and functioning. God calls them to occupy it fully, but they fail to do so, right? They um, make allowances for other nations to continue when God said, don't drive them out fully. And so what we find is this continual cycles of failure in the time of the judges where they get uh, into this kind of um, reoccurring theme where they fall into sin, they become servants of other nations, they cry out to the Lord, the Lord gives salvation, and then there's a period of silence and it just cycles. And that's what you find in the book of Judges. Didn't want to cough in your ear. Um, Israel continues to decline spiritually. We find among the, on the priesthood that there's total corruption among the priests. Eli and his sons are the, the pinnacle example of that. At this point, there's no king. They're disgruntled by that. There's no capital. Shiloh's taken out. No priesthood. 
Eli has died, no land, the Philistines have taken over, and what do they do? They don't want a theocracy anymore, it's not going well for them, and so they cry out, they want a king like all the other nations have a king, they appoint one for themselves who's tall and ruddy, he looks like a king of the other nations, but what they don't value or look to is his heart, and so they appoint a king with the wrong heart, and that's Saul. He had no regard for the ark. He was disobedient to the Lord and, dis- and had a disregard for God's law. So what does God do? He raises up a man after his own heart in David to rule his people. One of David's first acts was to go get the ark. He was obedient to the law. He treasured God's law. Then you have Solomon. Solomon had a divided heart. There were certain things that Solomon did that were uh, outstanding, wonderful that he asked for wisdom to lead God's people well was was uh, shocking and and good but what the Lord told him to guard himself from uh, he did not foreign wives power money establishing the kingdom on his own um, by his own means and so God specifically warned him don't acquire for yourself horses wives or money Um, horses were like military power. So it'd be like telling a ruler of a nation, hey, don't go spend all of your resources on tanks and fighter jets. Trust me to protect you. And then a king goes and spends all the money on tanks and fighter jets. Wives, why was wives an issue? Turn their hearts to foreign gods and it was a means of making allegiances with other nations. So absolutely both of those. And God warns against both of those things. Foreign wives will turn your hearts to foreign gods and um, the ties to other nations will not be helpful for Israel who is to not have allegiances with pagan nations. They were to be a nation set apart unto God for God's purposes. And then money, money's power. So what was the result of this? In 931, you've got the split of the Israel kingdom. You've got the northern 10 tribes, and then you've got the southern two tribes. What were the southern two tribes? Judah and Benjamin, exactly. And they they comprised what was then referred to as Judah after that 931 period. Sometimes it's used interchangeably, Judah, Israel. They're still considered Israel, the people of God, but for delineation between the two, Israel was the northern ten tribes. Judah, who were still Jews, still the nation of Israel, but just the southern two tribes were referred to as Judah. Where that gets particularly nuanced is if you read uh, prophets to Judah post-Assyrian captivity, which the Assyrian captivity took the northern ten tribes, you'll see more frequently is Judah referred to as Israel because Judah's no longer, or because Israel's no longer functioning, they've been taken into captivity. Um, So you've got Israel, the 10 tribes, Judah, the two tribes. Israel had no good kings after the split, no kings that were faithful to Yahweh. And eventually they were taken into the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC. That was the end of the established uh, northern tribes of Israel. Judah, however, had some good kings. They had some good kings, some bad kings. In 605 BC, they were taken into the first phase of the Babylonian captivity. That's where you see men like Daniel, right, being um, taken into Babylon. And the promise for for, uh, Judah was that there is a future for them. God's not finished with them. Uh, Even 
Daniel understood the 70, 70 years from Jeremiah that they were going to be in captivity. And in Daniel 9, he prays this majestic prayer, lamenting over the lack of repentance of the people of Israel in captivity in Babylon because the time of captivity is coming to an end. And it doesn't appear that what needed to happen in the hearts of the people have happened yet. And so he says, uh, preserve us, not for our namesake, but for your namesake. Um, And what we find is that God's in control. He's not finished with his people. He will make an atonement and he eventually will establish his kingdom. Why were they in exile? Well, it cured idolatry. Babylon, so um, the Babylonian captivity. Babylon was egregiously idolistic. Every idols were everywhere. Big idols, little idols, everything was an idol. And it was just in your face constantly. It was a means to creating distaste for the people of God towards that idolatry. They had a new found respect for the law and they had hope in a coming Messiah. And so they returned to the land. That's where you've got prophets like Nehemiah and Ezra as well as Malachi, as the people have entered back into the land, given provision to do that, to rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple. Who remembers Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah? One addresses rebuilding the walls, and one addresses rebuilding the temple. Do you guys remember which is which? Yes, exactly. Ezra is temple, Nehemiah is the walls. The way I remember that is Ezra is a shorter name, and a temple is compact. Walls are longer, and Nehemiah is a longer name. Okay. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I have to come up with stuff like that to remember things. So Ezra and Nehemiah, um, preparing for the Messiah to return. Um, There is no glory in the temple, but there's a promise of future glory to come and a coming Messiah. And eventually Christ comes in his first coming. It's not as the people hope for, but it provides salvation for all. The mystery of the church is established and there is yet a day when Christ will will come and return and all the promises to Israel be fulfilled. All right, key events of the Old Testament. We'll keep working through that. We did that last year. Uh, We'll do it a little less frequently this year. Uh, But I do want to keep that in front of us because it is helpful to have a context for our Old Testament. All right, let's jump into our outline for this morning. What I'd like to do is we're going to talk about conflict resolution and the call from Ephesians 4 to maintain unity in the church, in the bond of peace. Um, But I I want to give us a little bit of time on the back end to just dialogue and ask some questions because this is a very... Uh, present reality that we all at various times encounter conflict. And I'd love to be able to maybe draw out if there's um, specific questions or, or thoughts that we want to dialogue about, just give ourselves time for that. So let me take a drink here. The, the question that we should be thinking through, conflict is inevitable. There will be differences of opinion. There will be times where... Unfortunately, we're, we're sinners. We live in a fallen world. We don't agree. Strife rises up. Conflict exists. And what we're going to be looking at is primarily within the body of Christ, but these principles go beyond that. These are things that the root issues of conflict, solutions to conflict, we can take this into familial relationships. We can take this into neighborhood neighbor relationships, how do we conduct ourselves in our immediate community? We can take this into, listen, if you're in 
extracurricular activities, whether it's like dance, cheer, drama, music, sports especially, there can be so much emotion involved in what's going on on teams and cuts and starters and playing time and parents and responsibilities. Conflict's just inevitable in those things, sadly, sadly so. Um, so these tools can be invaluable to navigating those things. And so we put this discipline under both heart, home, and ministry because it's really rooted out of what is going on in your heart. Your participation in conflict is rooted out of what's going on in your heart. You have to be a peacemaker in your home before the Lord. Uh, each one of us should be one who advocates and brings peace into the home. And we're called to be at peace with all men as much as it has to do with us. So this really uh, encompasses the whole life of the believer. And what we want to go after is what we want to go after with everything, that we would navigate the various conflict that arises in our lives in a way that glorifies God. And so how do we maintain unity in the bond of peace? How do we navigate these things? And the sad reality is that as we contemplate navigating conflict, we need to be aware that the biggest threat to unity and peace within our lives, within the church, is us. We are the threat. It's not something outside of us. It's not cultural. It's not circumstantial. It's us. We're the problem, which is actually more comforting than if it was something else, because that actually means we have a part in the solution. If the conflict around us was solely rooted out of external things, well, then we just, okay, all we have is to just hope that things outside of us change, and we ultimately don't have control over that. But when we understand that the source of conflicts actually is rooted in us, uh, we have hope to change because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, empowers us. So as we begin, I want to look at God's design for unity and peace in the church specifically. But as I said, as men of God, we are called to be peaceable. We are, each one of us. So go ahead and turn to Ephesians 4. We may not jump into every passage this morning, but I do want to look at Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this is wonderful instruction. Paul gives after this instruction, explanation as to the oneness, the unity that is to exist in the body. Look at verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all in all. Do, do you see a theme there? Right on the heels of walking in a manner worthy of the calling, that's the main verb, the main thrust of verses 1 through 3, is a unique emphasis on the oneness that comes from being a follower of Christ. And in between that call to walk and the emphasis on the oneness is virtues like humility, gentleness, 
patience, tolerance, love, diligence to preserve unity in the bond of peace. That's what we're called to. And so we, we need to ponder what, what is actually, when we think about conflict, what is so important, what possibly in this world could be so important that we would allow it to in, intrude upon, to be a threat to the unity that God has called us to and granted to us in Christ. The gospel, the work of the gospel unifies us. We've been seeing this in Peter. It unifies us to God vertically, but it also unifies us to one another horizontally. Actually, we saw this especially two weeks ago from Ephesians 2 on the extended communion message, how we've been called to the body of Christ. We're a people of God. We're a temple of God. Um, That's God's intention. Part of God's work in the gospel is a horizontal or a vertical rather unity and reconciliation and a horizontal unifying and collecting of the people of God together into one body. And so we need to ponder what temporal thing on this earth would we give credence to so much so that we'd allow it to threaten the unity of love that the Lord calls us to in the body of Christ. I remember years ago talking with Julie's dad And he was telling me about his parents. I was talking about, I was trying to glean wisdom from him and his marriage with Sue. They're just exemplary, wonderful marriage, peaceable, uh, embrace their God-given roles with enthusiasm and joy. And I was talking to him about just how they'd grown in that. Where did that come from? And he told me a story about his parents became Christians later in life. But prior to salvation, even prior to salvation, he had never seen them fight once. He had never seen his dad raise his voice to his mom, speak unkindly to her. And he asked his dad, so this is Julie's grandpa, about that. Tell me about that. I mean, even prior to knowing Christ, you were this way with mom. And her grandpa's response was, your mom is just the greatest treasure of mine on this earth. What on this earth is more precious than her that would cause me to grow impatient with her, or to speak harshly towards her? That was an earthly love that he held really well prior to Christ and was incredibly indicting. <laughs> because what we know in the love of God is so much greater than any earthly love that we could experience. And when we think about the opportunity to glorify God, the opportunity to imitate Christ, the gift that our wife or unity within the church or fill in the blank, just godliness before the Lord to glorify him, the gift that that is, what on, what on this earth is more important, is worth threatening that gift of being able to honor the Lord, of getting to experience the unity in the church that the Lord desires. And so that was a, that was a wonderful lesson to hear. And then uh, to hear him talk about, hey, that's how, I thought about, that's how I thought about my wife prior to Christ. And then he went on to talk about in Christ all the more how he sought to lay his life down for her. And, and it was just a wonderful, wonderfully encourage, ex- encouraging example of faithfulness. So as we look back at Ephesians 4, Paul starts with the call to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, and then he gives words to describe this. Do you see that there in verse 2? 
So the call is to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called. And then he's going to describe what that actually looks like. So when we think about being saved, when we think about being called, and then the walk that the Lord intends for us, what virtues come to Paul's mind at the forefront as a walk that is in accordance with what you've been called to by God? Humility. Gentleness. Patience. Oh, this is such good news because these are things that naturally come out of most men, right? (laughs) Maybe not. Showing tolerance for one another in love. That's not like a disgruntled, um, whatever, they're just this way. That's like an embracing of somebody in love and not being put off by differences. Differences of opinion or differences of personality. And being diligent, part of walking, listen, part of your walking in a manner worthy of your calling is an ongoing diligence to preserve unity in the bond of peace. And so if this is what Paul describes walking in a worthy manner as, what does that say when we are failing to preserve unity in the bond of peace within the church? We are walking outside of a manner worthy of our calling. That's helpful. That's helpful to put in context that conflict, angst, disunity, uh, broken relationships aren't something that, well, we'll just let bygones be got bygones. It's just the way it is. That's not God's call for us in Christ. Okay, a couple other passages. You don't need to turn there. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33 says, Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. It's pretty all-encompassing. Seek to live in a way that you don't unnecessarily offend people. The gospel is inevitably offensive. This isn't a call to sugarcoat or, or tone down the gospel. But even how you own the gospel, right? Don't go, the gospel's offensive, so I personally can be offensive with this offensive thing. That's not what we're called to. The gospel's offensive, so I can be gruff, I can be a rebel rouser, I can be unkind, I can, whatever, be angry at people and yell and shout at them. That's, that's not what that, that's not what it means for the gospel to be offensive. The truth of the gospel is indicting on those who fail to repent and turn to the Lord. But that doesn't change the virtue and the character that the Lord calls us to and that he calls us to be peaceable men. Peaceable does not mean compromising and peaceable does not mean, and and being uncompromising does not mean being unpeaceable. Do you understand that? Those things, you can be peaceable and be uncompromising. Look at Jesus. Perfect example. Perfect example. Verse 33 says, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. That's Paul's disposition. He's he's looking to serve others, not serve himself, to be a blessing to others in his conduct. Even with an offensive message, that's what he's preoccupied with, not his own agendas. He's concerned with God's agenda, and wherever he can defer to somebody else in love, he does. I was feeling really good, and then I got a tickle in my throat, so I apologize for that. 
And then Colossians 3, 12 through 14. We'll, we'll circle around on this passage, uh, but you can just listen for now. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, again, here's same sentiment as Ephesians 4. Those who are chosen of God, holy and beloved, what are you to pursue? What are you to put on? A heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, very similar virtues, if not exactly the same on many of them. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. And I love this. Even if somebody hasn't overtly sinned against you, but you just have a complaint about how you've been treated in a situation, in your heart, resolve to forgive. Just, and the standard is just as the Lord has forgiven you. Beyond all these things, again, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So that's God's desire. That's God's call for us as men of God, that we would embrace those virtues, that we would pursue unity, peace, oneness within the body of Christ. Now we need to understand what is the source of our conflicts. And one of the clearest, most helpful passages in this is James chapter 4. And that one you can turn to. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. James says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures? that wage war in your members? This isn't a, an, a question of inquiry, right? This is a question of indictment. It's, it's fact, it is. Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. And then what we find is, is really the source of quarrels and conflicts among us is us, and it's us at the heart level. It's us at the heart level of what's going on. It's the strong passions, the strong desires within us that are uncontained, unaddressed, and they come out through various ways. You lust and don't have, so you commit murder. It doesn't start with murder. It starts with, with lust, with strong passions that are unchecked. You are envious, okay? You lust in your heart, you desire something and you cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. Every fight with your spouse, every harsh word with your spouse did not originate because they did something they shouldn't have. You had an idol in your heart that was not met and it came out of you. Every harsh word. There is no exception to that. No exception to any, well, this one was, <laughs> you don't know, Josh, this one was merited. No, every conflict with your spouse, with a family member, with a boss, where you respond in ungodliness is a result of idolatry in your own heart or thinking strong passions that weren't in accordance with God's desire for those passions. 
If your boss yells at you unjustly, you respond harshly, you're not justified in that. You're not justified. You're not justified in those things. If you respond out of anger, there's obviously nuances. I I can think of some of you that are first responders. You have to speak sternly in certain situations to demand the authority that you've been designated by God and express that appropriately. Doesn't mean you have a freedom to sin, but there might be opportunities where you speak sternly to garner somebody's attention uh, to protect yourself and other individuals. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about sinful outbursts of rage or anger or lack of love in various circumstances. And James says the source is you. Ultimately, if I'm in conflict, the source has to do with me, my pleasures that wage war in my members, lusts, these strong desires, these desires for comfort, desires for selfishness, and how easy it is to be in conflict with somebody. And then what do we typically do? Well, they're the problem. (laughs) If they just fill in the blank. Hey, listen, I only got upset because my wife did this. If she just did this, it never would have gone there. That's not true. It came out of your heart. It would have found a way. (laughs) It would have found a way to come out. If it wasn't this circumstance, you would have found another way to express the sinfulness that's in your heart. James talks about the same thing in chapter one. That that's where sin conceives inside of each one of us. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Paul says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and then listen to what else is included in this list. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Those are fruit or deeds outflowing of the flesh. That should sober us. And then he goes on in that same list to include things like envying, drunkenness, carousing. And so it's actually sobering when we think about the fact that disputes or dissensions or factions is in the same list as idolatry, sorcery, sensuality, drunkenness, carousing. That's, that's just sobering and it's helpful so that we keep things like factions and strife within the body of Christ in the context that God holds them. It's not like sorcery is this atrocious sin, but I'm just kind of at odds with this person and we'll just, you know, we'll just get through it. I'll go to another church and never address reconciliation. That's not God's intention for his people. So the source of our conflicts is us, our lusts, our desires, What are sinful ways to avoid conflict? Just quickly working through this list. How should we not go about addressing various conflict? Being reclusive, just keeping quiet. I'm just going to hold it in. I'm at odds with somebody. Uh, I'm just going to give them the silent treatment. If you're dissatisfied with something in your wife and you find yourself angry and embittered, the solution to that is not I'm going to manipulate her by punishing her through my silence. But Josh, I'm afraid of what I might say. Okay, well, good. Don't say something you shouldn't. (laughs) 
but don't perpetually go on in silence to punish the other person. There is wisdom in not speaking at times when you're not going to speak well. That's, again, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about things like, hey, I'm going to perpetually and ongoing avoid the issue because I just don't want to deal with it. I've got enough stresses in my life. I've got enough hardship. I struggle with anxiety. If we go back into this, it didn't go well the first time, so I'm just going to avoid it. That's what we're talking about. Any questions on that? Do you guys understand the difference? It's definitely a good idea to restrain yourself when you're angry from speaking foolishly. It is also foolish and unhelpful to perpetually remain quiet and never actually address the issue. With that comes staying away from each other, uh, distancing yourself. The solution to conflict, the long-term solution to conflict is not, I know they sit on this side, and so every time I come in the door, I'm going to sit on this side, and I'm just going to avoid them because it's not worth it. It's just too difficult. change the subject, avoid the issue. You see a theme here. Uh, Just don't want to talk about it. Even dishonest. Like if you're struggling in your heart with an issue, hey, can we talk about, oh, no, 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 no. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. Let's just let bygones be bygones and you don't actually deal with it. Unless you actually have forgiven, you need to deal with it. You need to work through it. Hide information or sins, or bitterness. Again, all of these things are related to one another. What are God-honoring ways of navigating conflict? Well, a few things to keep in mind. First of all, Hebrews twelve fifteen. See to it that you don't allow bitterness to take root in your heart. Understand the danger of bitterness. Hebrews twelve fifteen. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. You are coming short of the grace of God every time you entertain bitterness. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. You need to understand the danger of ongoing bitterness in your heart. It's it's damaging. It's living in a way that falls short of the grace of God. It causes trouble, and it defiles many. It just breaks down relationships. It damages. Sin is destructive and bitterness is sin. What are some practical ways of navigating conflict? Well, gather plenty of data before you speak. Proverbs 18, 13. Uh-oh, I went out of my notes. Proverbs 18, 13. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is a folly and a shame to him. Verse 17, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Uh, This was so crucial when all of the Racial issues were at the forefront of media and you'd see snippets and videos and then everybody was calling out and demanding justice and yet all they had seen was maybe a seven-second clip or a 15-second clip and they were making conclusive uh, declarations 
of systemic type things everywhere. It was an atrocious uh, negligence of these passages, of responding quickly and definitively before you heard multiple sides of the story, before you understood new information. And some of that is you just couldn't have information that you need to speak definitively about those issues. And and so, yes, conflict arises. This happens all the time. You hear something about somebody else and you rush to conclusions in your heart of what they must think or what they must have done. Did you go ask them, hey, can you help me understand this? I heard something along these lines. Is that true? Well, that is true. Why'd you do that? Because of this. Oh, it is offensive. <laughs> now I need to deal with it this way because I know the facts. Or, oh, it was totally different than how that other person perceived it. Oh, I'm so glad I I understood. I I would have been tempted towards thinking this way about you if I hadn't taken the time. Also hearing both sides of the story, not just hearing one and then making conclusive uh, thoughts in light of what you hear. So gather plenty of data before speaking when possible. It may not always be possible in the heat of the moment, but where you have opportunity to really understand, do so. And even if you're at conflict with somebody and you're struggling to understand where they're coming from, slow down and ask questions. Don't rush to conclusions in your own heart. If possible, Proverbs 15, 28, again, is wonderful guidance for us. It says, the, ri- the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. What does that tell us? If you pour out answers without pondering, it most likely will be evil. (laughs) Ponder, meditate, take to the Lord, pray, study, think about the issue before speaking if possible. If somebody comes to you and says something that's difficult to hear, if it's a hardship and maybe you even disagree, instead of, well, I don't agree with that. That never happens that, oh, Maybe there's something you need to, to hear there. Can I, that's hard for me to hear. Can I take some time to really think about that? That's okay. And it's a great way to help defuse the situation to understand better. If you can draw them out, are you saying this? Do you mean this when you say that? Um, that can be helpful in understanding what's going on. Proverbs 15.1, be self-controlled and loving in your speech. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 1 Peter 4.8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. Oftentimes, 1 Peter 4.8 is understood as love covers a multitude of sins, and so when people sin against me, I can love them and forgive them. That is a true sentiment from Scripture. That is a good call to forgive in love when sinned against. I actually think 1 Peter 4, 8, when love covers a multitude of sins, means that a loving response diffuses escalating circumstances. I think that's what Peter's actually getting at in that passage. Uh, and I think it's uh, a similar principle to Proverbs 15, 1, that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And so we have a part in this. Be self-controlled and loving in your speech. How easy is it to bite at one another? Somebody makes a sarcastic response. You, re- you respond in a really witty, clever, sarcastic response that puts them in their place. Then there's an outburst of anger. Then there's a outer burster of more anger. <laughs> and it just starts escalating. And all along, if you had remained self-controlled, 
you could have diffused the situation. You could have turned away wrath with a kind word, with a gentle response. With this, pray together in conflict. If you're fighting for this, if it's starting to escalate, there have been so many sweet moments where I've been in a situation and it's, it's just not going as I know need, it needs to go before the Lord. Hey, can we, just, can we just stop right now? What do we know to be true? We both love the Lord. We both are called to love one another. And we have divine power from God through his spirit to be able to honor him in this situation. Can we just pray? Can we just pray together and thank the Lord and pray that this would be about him? That the goal isn't to be right, but it's to be right with God, to honor him and to glorify him. Can we just remember the gospel together right now? If you grew up spilling milk at the table every other meal, and you had parents that were just incredibly long-suffering and patient with you, and you show up at dinner, and you've been thoughtful that day, man, I remember how every other meal I spilled my milk. Some meals I spilled it twice. You know, we'd just get it cleaned up. I'd get another cup, and I'd spill it. And my parents were so gracious. And you show up at dinner, and your kid spills the milk. Oh, been there. All right, let's clean it up. You know, not a big deal. If you are so consumed with yourself, give no thought to the graciousness that you've received and you have an agenda for that evening and the milk gets spilled and everything gets upended, how are you going to respond? You're going to be angry. Okay, remember the gospel. (laughs) There's no offense that they're bringing to you that is greater than what you've done to God. And if you remember, this is what I've been forgiven from the Lord. Okay, can we try to reset this conversation Oh, they didn't respond in a way that made you feel warm and cozy? Wow, you know what you've done against the Lord. This is, this is nothing in contrast to that to bear with. So respond in godliness, seek to glorify him. Demonstrate or communicate your love and care at the time of the disagreement. Express love, demonstrate love, give preference to the other person. Go ahead and turn to Romans. Well, actually, jump down to listen more than you speak. And then we'll go to Romans. That's Proverbs 10, 19. So while we're in Proverbs, we'll look at that one. When there are, when, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips are wise. Listen more than you speak, but do speak. Why? Proverbs 25, 11. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. So don't speak a lot. (laughs) Don't speak too much. You're going to be more likely to sin the more that you talk. And the right word at the right time is, is precious and really useful. So listen more than you speak, but do participate. Do speak. Don't just shut down. Okay, to Romans 12, and we'll wrap up. In Romans 12. So we are jumping back up to demonstrate and or communicate your love and care at the time of disagreement. Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Love that person. Be devoted. Um, 
Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. You are serving the Lord when you are loving that other person. So just reminding the person, hey, I know this is hard. I know this is a hard conversation. Can I just reaffirm? I, I just want you to know I'm, I'm struggling right now. It seems like you're struggling. I do love you, even though it may not feel like it. I, I genuinely want to serve you in this conversation. And I'm, I assume that you want the same. Let's, let's try again. <laughs> let's work through this. Be devoted to the other and giving preference and honor. What does this look like in conflict? Hey, if they have something on their heart, draw them out. Be more concerned with drawing out where they're at than trying to get off your chest where you're at. Let them. Hey, we need to talk about something. Would you like to go first? Would you? No, no, you go first. Okay, I've been feeling this way. How are you feeling? I imagine this must be hard for you. Well, yeah, it is hard for me. Can you help me understand that better? Don't just rush to defend yourself. Rush to get your point across. Prefer them. If, if all that comes from a conflict resolution discussion is you're better equipped to love them and own your mistakes, be content with that. Don't demand that they must do the same. Our obligation is to control us before the Lord and to be godly and charitable and loving. And so be devoted to others in love, giving preference. In matters of preference, prefer the other person. Again, what's so important in this world to you that's worth threatening unity or the opportunity to love another in Christ? And be more interested in God's glory and the other's good rather than having your own way or being right. Romans 15, 2 says, Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Again, shepherd your heart to be more concerned with glorifying God than getting your way. But Josh, if I do this, I will never get my way, and I'll always get the short end of the stick. If you are in Christ, you have already been given the longest stick you could ever hope for. (laughs) You are forgiven your sins, and you have eternity with Christ. Any moment of the short end of the stick is infinitely better than what you deserve, what I deserve. So you just have to take your thoughts captive. You have to direct your heart to right thinking. And yes, if what the Lord has for you is a life of getting the short end of the stick, you are building up for yourself through your godliness treasures that will bear weight into eternity. That's, that's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer when thinking rightly. And then we already looked at Colossians 3, but for the sake of time, we'll just revisit it. Love, forgive, clothe your heart with godly virtues. Just give no occasion for bitterness to grow. Forgive before it has an opportunity to, to root up as um, bitterness or anger or angst towards the other person. All right, there is so much more we could say on navigating these things. I'd love to hear your questions. What comes to mind? Comments, questions, points of clarification. Matt. Hmm. 
good. I think the some of the, some of the most common ways that people navigate conflict that I see is is the avoidance, is running away from it. I'm just it's just not worth it. Uh, it's not going anywhere. One of the biggest inhibitors to doing what God calls you to is assuming the response of the other person before it's happened. If I do what God calls me to, they're just going to do this. How do you know? And if you're doing what's right before the Lord, you can trust him with their response. You've done what's right before the Lord. So that's, that's a critical one. The other is seeking counsel as a means of manipulating the offender in their mind to be what they want. So I'm going to go get counsel on how to help the other person change. Or I'm going to go get counsel hoping that they step in and help the other person change. And so most of the time when conflict is handled poorly, it's because there's a far greater focus on getting out of the circumstance or changing the other party as opposed to a focus on addressing your own heart in the issue. And it's rare when somebody who was committed to addressing their own heart in the issue didn't result in some sort of reconciliation. It has happened. It does happen. Um, but it's rare. It's more rare. Say those two questions again. What did you hope to accomplish with your words? And what did you want when? I'm just thinking through those that listen on the recording later. That's so helpful in, in helping yourself or kids or whomever navigate conflict, conflict asking those questions because you don't realize oftentimes what's even coming out of your heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. This person needs to understand me. Yep. What else? What about, like, you know, 
Yeah, yep, that, that you're not feigning forgiveness for the sake of fear of man. Yeah. Um, Tom, do you have a, there, there's a CTO. I think some, sometimes we think of forgiveness as a one-time event that then passively bears ongoing fruit. So I forgave them. And so why am I struggling? Because I forgave them. Well, forgiveness is, yes, it's, a, it's an event that has ongoing, rent, like uh, needs to be ongoingly expressed. So it's not like, hey, I forgive them. And then a year later, well, I don't have to give any attention to that. I mean, I, I've had that, especially younger, there were some significant things that went on in my life and family where I really struggled with bitterness, worked to forgive, and then just wanted to not have to work at it anymore because I forgave them and then found out that bitterness had taken root. And, and then you wrestle with, well, did I never forgive? Well, you didn't forgive completely because it wasn't ongoing. And you're called to, what if God said, well, I forgive you of your sins, except today it really bothered me. So today I'm not going to, no, he, he forgives. It makes his forgiveness that much more impressive and comprehensive, but that's what we're called to. So it's, it's an ongoing deliberate choosing to not hold them hostage by the offense and to not bring it up and to not harbor bitterness, to choose to, to love. And so these virtues, you know, where those things that Tom was mentioning spring up, that's an indication that you're doing poorly. Um, where you can let go of offensive offenses, you're loving, you're giving of yourself, there's fellowship. There's not in your heart, yeah, buts going on. You're not holding them hostage to unspoken expectations. They better not do it again. You know, the, the I forgive them, but if they do it one more time, that's not forgiveness. <laughs> Holding them hostage. I'm going to forgive, but if they speak, if they look at me the wrong way, it's out the window. That, that's, that's not how we think about forgiveness. Mm-hmm.
All of that I wish I could repeat, but I'm going to say that Tom ended with, I'd rather, I'd, rather, I'd rather be the one sinned against than the one to sin against. If, if that's all we take away from this morning, uh, that is really good. Really good. That's, that's life-altering perspective to say, I'd rather endure the weight of somebody else's failures than make others bear the weight of mine. good. Uh, it's easy to say, hey, just, just put on compassion. Just be kind, right? In the moment, I, I don't know if maybe I'm the only one who's ever experienced this. It, it's not as extreme as this sounds, but I can wa- almost like out of body watch myself responding in ways that I know are dishonoring to the Lord and unloving and have a hardness of heart that doesn't want to change in that moment and be like, don't say it. Oh, you're saying it. Why are you doing that? And just having that internal conflict. And that's why shepherding your heart, remembering the gospel, saturating your mind with truth, entrusting yourself to the Lord, remembering Christ, all of those things are so invaluable to shepherding your heart. So in those moments of temptation, when you want, you just want to say that biting comment, you not only don't say it, but you repent of the thought of it. Because you just have a distaste for what you know is offensive to the Lord. Um, it's, it's hard. It does take work. Uh, and listen, you have wonderful resources here in this room of people that would love to help you. If you find yourself in conflict with, an, with another and you and that other person are just wrestling and you go to them, hey, could, could we invite Tom to sit with us? It's worth it. We would love to sit with you guys and help you work. We would love to give you personally tools to have the Lord grow you and sanctify you in those circumstances. If you're thinking, hey, I've got resources to change this other person, we'll we'll admonish you for that. (laughs) We'll admonish you for that appropriately. But we would love, it's just, it's important. It's not worth going, well, it's not a big deal. Like if you're if you're at true conflict with somebody, it needs to be addressed. Let's work through it. And either we can work through it by helping you forgive um, and move on, or we can help cultivate reconciliation. And listen, if God can reconcile me to Him, there's great hope this way that 
there's, that, that nothing can be undone. Uh, there's just great hope for that if the Lord could reconcile me. Any other comments? Questions? Okay. Great comments. I thought there'd be more questions. Tyler, anything you want to add? <laughs> Tom, keep talking. You should have taught this lesson. Not today. Not today. Well, let's do this. How about I pray? And um, Tom, it's 7.15. What would you like to do from here? Pray. Why don't we pray? Feel free to fellowship afterwards. We won't split into groups today. If you've got to run to work, run to work. If you need to refill coffee, refill coffee. And uh, thank you, men, for being here. It is, it is such a blessing to be with you. And I know it's early and there's a lot tugging at your life. So thank you. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for reconciling us to you. Uh, only a cost to you. It cost us nothing but giving up only what was destructive to us and gaining only what is good for us. You paid it all. You did it all so that we could be reconciled. And so we overwhelmingly give thanks. And Lord, I pray that we would remember that, embrace that, imitate that as we seek to live at peace with all men. Pray particularly for Tom that you would give him wisdom and godliness. Lord, that he would honor you with his life in every circumstance and particularly the one that he mentioned Lord, I pray for each of us as we're husbands and dads and co-workers and bosses and friends and brothers in Christ. Lord, help us to be characterized by peace. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Help us to be humble. Help us to, as Tom mentioned, be willing to be sinned against and sinned against and sinned against and have no tolerance in our own hearts uh, to sin against another, that we would fear sinning against you in our interactions with others. Help us to keep short accounts of our own sin. Help us to confess thoroughly, transparently. Use this for your glory. Help us to be men of peace, we ask in Jesus' name.